All right. Uh, we are. Uh, we've had a couple weeks off. Uh, two weeks ago, we had uh, Dr. Johnson. Was it Dr. Johnson was here? A different Dr. Johnson uh, was here and was speaking to us about the ethical issues that uh, that the church confronts in America and in the world today. And that was a really good time. He spoke several times on Sunday. And then last week we had an opportunity to. Uh, hear what all the different campus groups were doing and uh, it was an invitation for all of you to uh, explore other options and apparently uh, uh, most of you apparently decided to stick with Romans Uh, and uh, so uh, we've been off for two weeks so this is really going to test our our uh, onset of Alzheimer's here in this class to try and remember what we talked about three weeks ago but we were in Romans 10, and we actually still are in Romans 10. And today, we want to look at verses, uh, begin in verse 18, and try to get down through the end of the chapter. Uh, but why don't you look back through those previous uh, verses in Romans 10, all the way back to the beginning of 10, if you'd like. Uh, and let's try to piece together again what, what's, what's the context, what are some of the things that we talked about three weeks ago when we were together, and what, are, what, what is the context uh, that we're dealing with here in Romans 10? What do you remember that sticks out to you? Okay, okay. And what do we mean by that? Well, he's uh, either the end of the law or the fulfillment of the law because of his coming. Okay. 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 So, Christ's coming, his death, his resurrection, uh, he says, is the end of the law to everybody who believes. the idea, like we said, could be a couple things it, and, and maybe even as both. I think Mike suggested that it, that it uh, very possibly could mean both things, that it is that Christ is the fulfillment, He is the completion of the law, and it's certainly we know that is true from Scripture. And the idea is, and, or the idea is that for those of us who believe, we have ceased to try to attain righteousness through the law because now we have attained righteousness through Christ. And so in that sense, he is the end of the law. Okay. And so Paul has argued that that when Christ came, that brought an end to the law. But but he's making that point in a broader context. What's really the issue that he's wrestling with really kind of all the way through chapters nine, 10 and 11, but particularly beginning there at the end of chapter nine and into chapter 10? What is the broad issue that he's dealing with? that brought up this subject of Christ being the end of the law. Is God's word faithful? He had promised the Jews all these things and then it looks like he has turned his back on Okay. Them, which is not... Not everyone is a Jew because they were born a Jew. Okay. It's the believers that he's talking about. Okay, okay. Excellent. Paul actually talks about the Jews or the true Israelite in two ways. He talks about the ethnic Israelite or the ethnic Jew, and he talks about uh, and he talks about the this smaller category of Israel or Jews 
who are those who have believed, those who have trusted Christ. And the reality is that very few, in Paul's day, very few Jews were coming to Christ. And in fact, uh, there was, uh, by the time that Paul writes Roman, there are more Gentiles coming to Christ than there are Jews coming to Christ. And this raises the question, what's happened to the Jews? Has God's word, he asks, has God's promise failed as far as the Jews are concerned? This is an important question because at the end of Romans chapter 8, he promised us, he told us that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so the question is, what's going on with the Jews? And that's the question that he's wrestling with. So this really isn't just a question about the Jews. Because if it were just a question about the Jews, why would we as Gentiles in the 21st century, most of us I think in here are Gentiles, probably all of us, why would we even worry about this or be concerned about this? But the reason it's important is because it has to do with the faithfulness of God. It has to do with whether or not we can believe God's promises. Okay? What else? Okay, okay, and that comes up in his discussion about what does the word of righteousness by the law or the word of righteousness by works say? What is the what is the righteousness by works? What does it say as opposed to what does righteousness by faith say? And he talks about he compares these two words, if you will, these two messages. And there's the message of righteousness by works or righteousness by the law and there's the message of righteousness by faith. And he's comparing these two. And he says, pertaining to this, as, as Howe was pointing out, in reference to this, into the, in reference to the word of faith or the word of Christ, the, the, the word that righteousness by faith comes uh, or, or says, he says in reference to that word, he says, it's, it's not hard to get. It's not something we have to go up into heaven and bring Christ down. We don't, we don't have to go down into the abyss. We don't have to bring Christ up. He says, the Word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And so he's talking about, he's talking about if I can put it this way, he's talking about the simplicity and the ease with which one can come to Christ. It's not a... It's not a Hard, difficult thing. Now, of course, it is as far as a moral thing. It's a hard or difficult thing. But, but it's, not a, it, it's not like we have to go do something. We don't have to go get Christ and bring Him to us. We don't have to go down and bring... All of that's been done. The whole work of atonement, the whole work of salvation has been done. And the only thing that's left for you and I to do is simply believe and call upon the name of the Lord. And that's what he says. And so he reaches the conclusion then, quoting uh, from the Old Testament, he says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which is what he says there in verse 13. He says, uh, he says there's no, in verse 12, he says, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. And we discovered this principle of the universal objective Lordship of Christ. Remember, we talked about the universal objective lordship. What are we talking about? We're talking about the universal objective lordship of Christ. Whether they accept him, whether they believe, whether they understand or not, he is still the Lord of all 
Okay? So when we talk about Christ's Lordship being objective, we talk about the fact that He, he is the Lord over all creation regardless of man's response to Him. So if I if uh, if today I get up in the morning and I you know and I sense Christ telling me I ought to do this or ought to do that or I shouldn't do this and I choose to disobey Him that doesn't change the fact that He is still Lord. He is Lord. He's not subjectively Lord in my experience, but He is still objectively Lord over all creation. So that's the objective lordship of Christ. But there's also the universal Lordship of Christ, which means what? He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over... So He's not just objective Lord over me, but He is the universal Lord. Okay. And based on this idea of the objective, universal Lordship of Christ, Paul then argues out of that truth, he argues that there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. Because if He is the universal objective Lord, He is the universal objective Lord, not just over the Jews, but He is the universal objective Lord over the Gentiles as well. And so, if the, if the offer of salvation is whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, whoever will recognize that universal objective Lordship of Christ and personally subject and submit themselves to it will be saved, that applies not just to the Jews, but applies to the Gentiles because it applies to everyone over whom He is the universal objective Lord. And so we discover from that that salvation by faith in Christ through Christ's atonement is available to all people. Because just as just as we can eliminate the distinction between Jew and Gentile, we can eliminate the distinction between all people. And we can say there is no distinction between anybody because He is the universal objective Lord of all. And so there is no distinction. God has made no distinctions between people and said, I will save these people and I will not save these people. Based on the universal objective Lordship of Christ, we understand that whoever will call upon Him will be safe. Alright? Well, but then that raises the question, what needs to happen for somebody to call upon the name of the Lord? They have to hear the word from a preacher. Okay, before they... Okay, uh, but you jumped one step ahead of me. Okay? So, before they call, they need to... Believe, okay? So before somebody's going to call on the Lord for salvation, they need to believe He will save them if they call, right? Okay. But then, what's necessary? What has to happen if they're going to believe? I mean, in order for them to believe. Pardon? They've got to hear it, okay? They've got to hear this word, okay? Now, this, this, there's an important distinction here because we're going to talk... In the verses we're talking about today, we're going to talk about two revelations, the general revelation and special revelation. And Paul's now talking about special revelation. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But what he's saying regarding this special revelation, the revelation that Christ is the Savior and that by faith in Him I can be saved, that has to come through uh, hearing. I've got to hear it. Okay? But if I'm going to hear it, what's the, what's the predicate? What has to happen in order for people to hear this Word of Christ? It's got to be preached, okay? It's got to be a preacher. And, and we talked about the idea uh, of the, 
the preacher is not what we think of today when we think of a preacher. You know, when we think of a preacher today, we think of the guy who's the head of the church and stands up in the pulpit on Sunday mornings, okay? Well, he is a preacher, hopefully, but that's not the idea. The idea of the preacher there, there you know, that Paul is using is the idea of the town crier, the herald, the guy who goes out on the streets and the highways and the byways and he shouts out and he proclaims the message. And he says, this is necessary for people to hear. There's got to be a town crier. There's got to be a herald. There's got to be a preacher. But in order to have a preacher, what has to happen? Got to be sent. Okay? There's got to be a sending. And then Paul kind of summarizes the whole thing there with a quote from Isaiah where he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the glad tidings. Okay? But, we have a problem. In verse 16, he says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so, this brings us to, really, to the verses that we're going to look at today. Now, remember that in the context, Paul is speaking of the Jews. Now, this can, these verses can apply, of course, on a much broader scale. But in the context, he's speaking about the Jews and the predicament that the Jews find and whether or not God's word and God's promise for the Jews has failed. Okay? That's the issue that he's dealing with. And the question comes up now, they've not all believed the report. So, where has the breakdown been? We studied, uh, <coughs> three weeks ago, we studied that sequence. You got to hit, you know, in order to... Uh, call, you've got to believe. In order to believe, you've got to hear. In order to hear, a preacher's got to preach. In order to preach, he's got to be sent. But the Jews have not believed. Isaiah cries out, he says, Lord, who has who's heeded our message? Who's heeded the good news? Okay. And Isaiah's frustrated because, because his people aren't believing this good news. Where did the breakdown occur? Did the breakdown occur here at the top at the believing or did it occur at the hearing or did it occur at the preaching or did it occur at the... Where did the breakdown occur? And that's the question then that Paul is addressing in verses 18 through 21. Why has the Jew not believed? Where, 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 has, the, where has the glitch come in this, in this process? Right? So, beginning in verse 18, he says, but I say, surely... They have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So in these verses, verses 18 through 21, Paul gives us three possible answers to the question. Why has the gospel failed in respect to the Jews? Why have the Jews not embraced the gospel? Why have they not believed it? And, and his three questions, the three possible suggestions that he offers, and we'll look at each one of them individually. The first one is, well, 
Obviously, they haven't heard. Because if you hear, you believe, and you call, right? So obviously, they haven't heard, right? And Paul says, well, no, that's not the problem. And so the second one, he goes, well, they didn't know. And what he means by that is they didn't understand. Okay? So they heard it, but they really didn't understand it. And Paul says, well, no, that's not the problem either. And we'll explore that and why that's not the issue. And so then he reaches the conclusion of the ultimate reason why the Jews had not believed. Okay? Which he addresses there in the final verse. So, so this is kind of where we're going in the verses that we're looking at today. And the first possible suggestion that Paul puts forward is, well, they have not heard. And what is his answer to that? They have heard, okay? They have heard. And, and then what does he say? How does he support that, that they have heard? Okay, so he quotes here from Psalm 19. And he talks about how the word has gone out into all the world. Okay. Now, you've got to put your thinking caps on here for a second. In Psalm 19, this is a quote from verse 4. If you need to, you can go back and you can look at the passage. But in Psalm 19.4, what is the psalmist talking about? The heavens are declaring the glory of God and the firmament is showing His handiwork, okay? So he's discussing what? General revelation, okay? He's discussing the general revelation in Psalm 19. And he's saying that, that God's glory is displayed throughout all of creation. Now, this is something that we know that Paul is very familiar with, this idea of general revelation. How do we know that? Romans 1, right. That's one of the very first issues we dealt with in Romans. The human predicament. And part of the human predicament is that God has been revealed in the things that have been made and we have dismissed that knowledge. We have rejected the knowledge that is given to us in general revelation. Why do we call it general revelation? It's a theological term we use. Why do we use the term general revelation? Okay, everybody gets it. It's available to everybody, uh, you know, to the, from the little kid, you know, crawling in the mud in a hut in South Africa, you know, or, you know, to the most sophisticated, rich, you know, billionaire uh, on the streets of New York City. This revelation is available. It is out there. It's in their face. And in order to not get the message, you've got to consciously reject it. Okay, so. So this is why we call it general revelation. And the psalmist is speaking about the general revelation. And he says it's out there all over. Now, what's interesting is what Paul does with this psalm. Because Paul takes it. And what is Paul talking about here when he says their word has gone out into all the world? Is he talking about the general revelation? Okay, he's talking about the gospel, isn't he? In the whole chapter, he's been talking about the word of faith. The word of faith which we are preaching. This is the message of Christ. And so Paul is taking this 
verse, he's lifting this verse out of Psalm that in its original context talks about the general revelation and he's applying it to the special revelation. Now, Paul knows full well that the message about Christ is not revealed in the heavens. He knows full well that the word of faith is not accessible through general revelation. How do I know that Paul knows that? Okay, that was true in his experience, but there's something in this chapter that tells us that Paul knows full well that you can't get the message about Christ from general revelation. It's got to be preached and somebody's got to be sent. You've got to hear it. It's got to be preached. It's got to be sent. So Paul knows that you can't get saved by just looking at the stars. Okay? Now, the stars and the heavens, they tell us a lot about God. But they don't tell us the message of salvation by faith and righteousness of God by faith. They don't tell us that. That's got to come by a preaching. That's got to come by somebody being sent. So when Paul says here that their words have gone out to the ends of the world, he's actually speaking, he's actually speaking here about the special revelation that comes through the preaching of the cross. Okay. So what Paul has done here is he's taken the words of Psalm 19, which originally referred to general revelation, he has lifted them and, and in one sense, if we could say, he's using the eloquence and the beauty of Psalm 19 to refer to a new phenomena. The old phenomena was the proclamation of the glory of God through the general revelation. But the new phenomena about which this same thing now can be said. It couldn't be said earlier. But now in Paul's day, it could be said that this word has gone out into the whole world. Okay, now, this creates all kinds of problems for us and we'll have to wrestle with these here today. You know, really? Has the gospel gone out? You know, why are we still sending out missionaries if it's already been done? Okay, these are questions we have to address. But clearly what Paul is thinking here if we, if we look at what he's done in lifting Psalm 19.4 out and bringing it out of its ancient meaning and applying a new meaning to it in, in, in Romans chapter 10, if we look at that and we look at the other things that Paul has said in chapter 10, what Paul is clearly saying is this word is being preached in all the world. And people all over the world are hearing this message. Okay. Now, the question is, is that true? Is that true? Was it true in Paul's day that the gospel was being preached all over? Or, or, or is he just kind of is he just kind of gone off the deep end here? You know, has he just got carried away with the excitement of this whole thing? Well, flip with me over to the book of Colossians, <clears throat> and uh, and if you're familiar with the situation in Colossia, uh, Colossae. Uh, You'll remember that this particular church is a, 
it's a place, it's a city where Paul had never been. So at the time he writes this letter, he's never seen these people. He's heard about them, and he's concerned about them, but he's never met them. And he never preached the gospel. But there's a church there. There's people there who have heard the gospel and have believed the gospel, and they've been saved. And Paul is concerned about the church there, so he writes this letter. And it's in this context that he says in chapter 1, he says, verse 6, well, pick it up in verse 5, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so he says, he says, this gospel is bearing fruit and it's increasing, increasing all over the world. Just like it did with you. I didn't come there and preach the gospel to you. The gospel just got there to you. you know, other people from other cities. People who presumably weren't even apostles. Maybe they were just traveling Christians or whatever. They went to Colossa and they preached the gospel in Colossia. And the Colossians started getting saved. And he said, what happened to you in Colossia is happening all over the world. And then if you go to the same chapter and you go over to verse 23, he says the same thing. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He says here, this gospel is being proclaimed in all of creation. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the picture we typically get of the church's success Excuse me, in fulfilling the Great Commission, is it? We get this picture that the church started out real small and it was just this little small thing. And, you know, over years and years, you know, we managed to see a few more people saved. You know, and it got bigger and bigger and there's a lot of Christians now. But still, the task is so overwhelming and there's so many people out there and we are such a minority that, you know, we're just not getting this job done. I've got good news for you folks. The church is getting the job done. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, I don't want to suggest that Paul is unaware that there are many people out there who have not yet heard of Christ. He knows that. And we know Paul knows that. Because Paul's whole evangelistic strategy was to do what? What was Paul's kind of overall strategy? The gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel to the Gentiles, and specifically which Gentiles? No? Well, I mean, Romans were included, but... I'm thinking the Europeans. Well, not necessarily. He, he, had, he had a certain class of people that he pretty much wouldn't go to. And a certain class of people he would go to. The group who hadn't heard. The group who hadn't heard. Paul says this. He says it in Romans 15. We'll get to it when we get to it. He says, my desire was to preach where Christ had not yet been named. So Paul does recognize that there are places in the world where Christ has not yet been named. But what we see through the eyes of Paul that I think oftentimes we overlook as, as 21st century believers, what we see through the eyes of Paul is that really the church was doing some fantastic things in the very first century. 
And it was having an impact all over the world. I've told this story before in class, but I'll tell it again because some of you may not have heard it. But several years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Russia to visit my son, uh, who was living there for a couple of years. And while we were there, we had an opportunity to travel with him to another city uh, of just uh, for tourist reasons, just to visit this place. And so we went to this city, which is called Derbent. And Derbent is right on the border between Russia and Azerbaijan. So it's very southern tip of Russia. And when we went there, uh, one of the reasons we went there is because there was this fortress there that we wanted to look at. And, and uh, I'm really into historical stuff and historical places. And, you know, I get in some really historical places. You know, if you ever stood on the fields of Gettysburg, you know, or places like that, you know, to me, it just kind of makes the chills run down my spine to be there and to realize real human beings really lived out history on this soil. And so I was excited to go and visit this fortress because this fortress was first built when the Jews were in captivity in Persia. And this fortress was built uh, there at Derbent. The Caucasus Mountains come across. There's a land bridge there between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. There's a land bridge there between, uh, between what we think of now as Iran and Iraq and that area and, and Russia. Okay, so there's this land bridge between these two large bodies of water, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And, the, and stretched across that land bridge from one sea to the other is the Caucasus Mountains. Okay, so they prevent, they prevented in, you know, in the, 5th century B.C., they, pre they presented a, a, a barrier, a secure line of defense for Russia from the Persians, okay? But right down where the Caucasus end, they drop off, and then immediately you have the Caspian Sea. There's a little narrow piece of land there that if the Persians had wanted to, they could have come through north into Russia. And so the Russians, or whoever the people were at the time, built this huge fortress right there on the end of the Caucasus Mountains. It overlooks the Caspian Sea. And to make sure that nobody could get through, they built a wall, a huge wall. We actually drove through a gate in this wall as we were driving up to see this fortress. There's this huge wall that goes from the fortress all the way down the rest of the way down the foothill there and clear out into the Caspian Sea. And, uh, and so we, were, we drove through this wall and then drove up the road and up into the foothills there to this fortress and I got out of the I got out of the car and I just walked over there and I put my hand because the place had been you know destroyed and rebuilt several times over the millennia you know but I went over to one of the big huge foundation stones you know it was like 20 feet long and 10 feet high and I put my hand on that and I thought this stone was laid when the Jews were in captivity in Persia it's just an awesome feeling <laughs> you know and uh and so we're taking a tour of this fortress and we're going through and it goes up higher and higher levels as we kind of go up the side of the mountain a ways. And we're looking at these things and we look at this huge cistern that had been done, dug in the rocks where they stored their water and stuff. And, we get, and pretty soon we come up, we're kind of up high and we come around and there's this hole, just this hole in the ground. And there's, we look down and it's covered with, they've got uh, rebar. Uh, over this hole to keep you from falling into it, okay? And you look down and there's these brick walls around inside this hole. And I'm going, well, this must be another cistern. And so I think, and our guide says to us, well, actually, he says, what this was, 
with a first century Christian church. First century. Here we are, thousands of miles from Israel. Thousands of miles from the birth of the faith. And I am looking. I'm standing there looking in a place where men and women of God worshipped in the first century. Now that, that was pretty profound to me. Well, I came home. And about a week or two later, I was preparing to teach my Sunday school class. Okay? Teach you people, but most of you weren't here then. Okay? And, and I was getting ready to teach the class. And for some reason, we were talking about the lives of the disciples or whatever. And so I just wanted to do some research and, you know, and look up about how all the disciples died. You know, I mean, I'd read this stuff before, but I just wanted to look it up again and kind of refresh my mind. And as I was going through, I came to the story of Bartholomew. And, of course, we don't really know for sure how any of the disciples died. But we have these legends that we think are pretty reliable. And one of the legends about Bartholomew is that he was martyred in Derbent. And suddenly I'm going, I may have been looking in a church where the apostle Bartholomew preached the cross of Christ. And people gathered to worship. And that story can be told over and over again from the shores of Great Britain to the jungles and the fields of India in the first century. So when Paul says that this message about Christ is bearing fruit and is increasing all over the world, he's not just blowing smoke. This was really happening, folks. God, God has this, this way of getting His message out. Another story. Uh, I'll tell some stories here. We won't get the passage done. But another story that kind of just shocked me was while we were there visiting my son, we had an opportunity to travel way up into the Caucasus Mountains. They had a friend who lived, who lived, came from a village way up in the Caucasus Mountains. And so he wanted us to go see his home village and meet his family. And so we rented a couple cars with drivers and a group of us. And we traveled for hours through the mountains of the Caucasus Mountains way up to this remote village. And as we're driving, I'm looking at these various villages on the sides of the mountains because what I've learned from my son as he was in that area, what I learned from my son is this is one of the areas of the world that has the highest density of different ethnic languages of any place in the world. So what happens in that part of the Caucasus Mountains is you have a little village on one side of a mountain and right on the other side of the mountain you have another village and they speak a totally different language and they can't even communicate to each other. Just right across the mountain. So I'm driving through these roads and I'm looking, there's a village there and I'm thinking, they have different languages. And the only way they communicate now is that they all know Russian. So they communicate through a, through a third language, through Russian. That's how they communicate with you. Because their native tongue they can't speak. So we get up to this village and it's way up there. And it's a village that's been decimated by wars. And, and it's way out of the way. And they speak this language. And so, so my son's friend, as we're communicating with his family, his family speaks to him in their native tongue. 
He would then speak to Benjamin and Benjamin's friend Aaron in Russian. And then Benjamin would translate from Russian to English for us so we could understand and communicate with his family. And as we were driving back from that village, I'm asking myself, how is the gospel ever going to get there? How is, it, how is that? And there are tens and thousands of villages like that all over the world. Millions, maybe. I don't know. And there's all this, and, and this is just one. How is the gospel going to get there? To this one little place. And I was just kind of overwhelmed by the thought. And we got back to Benjamin's home, home city where he was living at the time. And a couple days later, we went to visit a Christian couple that were kind of helping to uh, uh, a, a ethnic group that was a ethnic couple that was trying to uh, was leading a church there in that particular city. And we went to visit them and we sat at the table. And we said, you know, a couple of days ago we were up so and so, and she said, "Oh, really?" She says, "We know a couple who went up there, a Christian couple who went up there and taught in their public school up there." For a year. You know, folks, being critical of the church is like shooting fish in a bowl. Isn't it? It's so easy to be critical of church. We can all do it. One of the things that, you know, I. I've gotten a little older, and so as I've gotten a little older, I think I've gotten a little less critical of the Church of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a young person, I had a, a study that I used to teach. I taught it two or three times, entitled 20 feet, 25 Things That Are Wrong With the Church. You know, I'm embarrassed to say it now. You know, but shooting, you know, picking at the church and finding things wrong with the church is just as easy as shooting fish in a bowl. That's, you know, it's just... We got a ton of problems, folks. But it is the bride of Christ. It is his bride. And he left the church here to do a job. And that job was to proclaim his name in all the earth. How are we doing? Well, you know, we realize at this point in the 21st century the immensity of the task, right? We recognize that there are billions of people out there who have not yet really heard the gospel. On Tuesday, from this church, we're sending three people into Central Asia to make contact with an unreached people group, right? From Norman, Oklahoma, three people are leading. We had them on our prayer list this morning. They're leaving and they're going, into, they're going into Central Asia and they are going to try to make contact with and begin to establish contact with an unreached people group. There's an immense task out there and there are many people that are unreached. But I want to give you something to think about. Okay? Uh, take this chart and look at this chart. When I first came across this chart about a year ago, I went, Really? I didn't know this. But what this chart represents is the ratio 
of non-Christians to Christians from the first century to 2010. And as you look at that chart, you'll see that and, and uh, you'll notice th these numbers are not just kind of arbitrarily put together by somebody. They're actually uh, sourced from the Luzon Statistics Task Force, which is a major missions, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it organization, but establishment uh, and uh, highly, highly, uh, highly reputed. And these statistics come from them that in A.D. 100, there were approximately 360 non-Christians to every Christian in the world. But you'll notice as you go through the two millennia since then, in 1,000, that had dropped to a ratio of 1 to 270. And by the year 1,500, it had dropped from, to a ratio of 1 to 85, etc. Until today, the ratio is approximately 1 in 7. Now, of course, that 7 represents a large, larger number of actual people. Okay? It represents billions of people, of course. But the point is that as a percentage of the world's population, the Christian message is getting out there. We are getting this task done, folks. We are reaching the world. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but that's exciting news. So in a couple months, actually in a few weeks, we're going to start the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, right? And we're going to be talking about the need of all these unreached people groups and all these people who haven't heard the gospel. And we're going to be wanting to raise money to fund missions for the Southern Baptist Convention to send people out and to reach these people. And I want to tell you, folks, it's a doable task. And as many problems as the church has had in the last 2,000 years, dare we count them? As many problems as the church has had in the last 2,000 years, one of the marvelous things that's happening is the Word of God, just as Paul said in Colossians 1, the Word of God has been bearing fruit and increasing in all the world. And so when you think, in the next couple months, when you think about what am I going to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, I want you to think in these terms. This is a winnable job. This is a winnable task. We can do this. We can't do it because it's in us. It's in Christ and it's in the power of His Word, but it is happening. And so, Paul is saying here, if we get back to Romans now, Paul is saying here, listen, they have heard. The message has gotten out there. Now, I personally think that because we saw with Paul that he talks about the word bearing fruit in all the world, and etc. But he's also cognizant of the fact that there are unreached peoples and he wants to go to those unreached peoples. So there's that tension in Paul, okay? So I think what Paul is really saying here is that because what you're really talking about here is the problem of Jewish unbelief. What he's really saying is wherever the diaspora is, you know what the dysphoria is? The dispersion. Wherever the Jews were, okay? And the Jews were scattered all over the world. Remember Acts chapter 2? At the beginning of the story in Acts chapter 2, as he's beginning to tell us the story of Pentecost, what does he tell us about the Jews in Jerusalem? Remember? He says there were Jews there from every nation of the world. The diaspora would come back in pilgrimage and they would come back to Jerusalem. 
for Pentecost, even more so than Passover. They would come back for Pentecost. And they would have this great celebration and stuff. We think of the Muslim migration or uh, 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 pilgrimages to Mecca, okay? There's a thing kind of like that, okay? Where they're coming in from all over the world. And so he says there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation of the world in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And it was at that strategic moment that the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And the gospel was first publicly preached by Peter and the other apostles. And on the very first day the gospel was preached, 5,000 people were saved. Thousands of those people were from other parts of the world. And they eventually went back there. He cares a whole lot more about getting this message out than we do, folks. And so Paul is saying, yeah, they've heard. They can't say we have not heard. The gospel has gotten out there. Well, if they've heard, then why don't they under, why don't they believe? Well, then Paul's second suggestion is, well, maybe they don't understand. Maybe it's just so hard to comprehend. I mean, this is really a complex idea. You know, we have people who spend their whole life studying theology, right? So maybe it's just too Hard to understand. So he says in verse uh, 19, he says, But I say, surely Israel did not... uh, Excuse me. uh, Yeah. Uh, Yes, verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. And by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says... I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. First, he quotes from Moses. And he's actually quoting from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, uh, in the Song of Moses, Moses is recounting and even speaking prophetically of Israel's overall experience with God. And he gets down to about verse 21 and verse beginning about verse 15 and he starts talking about Israel's idolatry and how they'd gone off to worship other gods. And he says, you went and worshiped gods that were not gods. They weren't really gods. They were just kind of come lately idols. And you went off to worship them. And when you did that, you provoked me to jealousy. Why? Well, <clears throat> because... Throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures talk about Israel and God and like kind of husband-wife thing, right? So he, he speaks of he speaks of himself being betrothed to Israel. You know, we talk today about the church being the bride of Christ. Well, in, in that that same kind of analogy was used in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh and Israel. And so when Israel decided that they were going to go worship other gods, it was like a wife walking away from her husband to, to go have an affair with another man. And we know what happens when, you know, when a wife does that. You know, it makes the husband jealous, right? God says, you've made me jealous. You've gone off and you've worshipped these other gods. You've made me jealous. And so when we read about God making Israel jealous... We have to put it in its context. 
It's not just some arbitrary thing that God has done. It's his response to what they have done to him. And that's exactly what he says in Deuteronomy 32.21. He says, you made me jealous. I'm going to make you jealous. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to save. He says, you went over and you worshipped gods that were not gods. He says, I'm going to save a nation that's not a nation. I'm going to save a people that's not even a people. He's speaking of the Gentiles. See, we're not a people. We're not a people like the Jews are a people. You know, we don't, we as Gentiles, we don't trace our lineage all the way back and, and identify in our whole history God working through us as a people. We're just Gentiles. We're just a bunch of pagan people out there walking around on the streets and on the mountains and in the deserts. And we care less about God. We don't care about God. And we're, we're not at all concerned about it. And God says to Israel, you made me jealous. He said, I'm going to go find those people who have not searched for me. They have not looked for me. They have not asked for me. And I'm going to be found by them. I'm going to be found by them. And in the passage he quotes from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, God actually says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to go, here I am, here I am. Isn't that a great picture? I'm overwhelmed by that. Folks, I'm a Gentile. I don't have any claim. I'm just a Gentile. I wasn't out there searching for God. I wasn't out there looking for God. And all of a sudden, he just shows up and he goes, here I am, here I am. Now, all of us have looked for things in the past. All of us have lost things and we've searched for them and we've tried to find them and we're really glad we find them, right? Okay. But have you ever found something you didn't look for? You know, it happens, you know, once in a while. Usually it's not all that great, you know? I go out for walks early in the morning to pray and I walk up to a park near our house and, and, and on the way back a few days ago, I walked and there was a penny lying on the street, Okay. And it had been run over by a car. So I started to stoop over to pick it up. And I went, ah, it's been run over to me. And I walked on. No big deal. Well, I went for a walk with my wife a couple days later. And we were walking back. And there was that penny again. And she stooped down and picked up. You know what? It wasn't a penny. It was a dime. I lost out. (laughs) Well, we don't very often find things, just stumble on things that are of much value. Once in a while it happens. And when it does, then we usually feel like we've got to find the owner, right? But folks, we have stumbled on something that is precious beyond measure. We were out there just wandering around in the fields and the streets or whatever, and then all of a sudden God just showed up and He says, here I am. You don't have any claim to me. You don't have any lineage by which you can say, I belong to you. But here I am. You found me. And this is going on all over the world at this hour, even as I speak, all over the world, he is being found by those who are not searching for him. There's an unreached people group in Middle Asia who've never heard the name of Christ. And this week, three people from Norman, Oklahoma are going to go there. And they're going to say, here he is. Here he is. 
You know, the story of Jared and his wife in Africa the last couple of weeks, you know. In, in places where people have never, ever heard the name of Christ are now hearing for the first time God say, here I am, here I am. You have found me and you weren't even looking. This is grace, folks. This is grace. And you know, there's sometimes I think it would have been cool to be a Jew. And to have that lineage and have all those promises and all those blessings of being a Jew. But I'll tell you what, folks, being a Gentile is an awesome thing. Because I was out there just minding my own business and God came along and He said, here I am. Here I am. And, and He says, those people who did not understand, those people who did not seek, they understood As soon as he said, here I am, as soon as the message was preached, they called upon the name of the Lord. They believed. So it's not a problem of not having heard, and it's not a problem of the message being too hard to understand. You know when I got saved? I was four years old. How hard can it be, folks? Some of you have children, little children. Or you have children that are grown now, but they were little and they came to Christ when they were little. How hard can it be to understand? It's not a problem that the Jews did not understand. It's not a problem that they did not hear. So what is the problem? Well, he says in verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of two things. But name it, I'll just stick with one for now. We're out of time. It reminds me of Jesus. When he was told that Herod was looking for him. And and he told the people who told him that Herod was looking for him, he said, You go back and you tell the old fox, you know, I'm here and there and, but I'm 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 on my way to Jerusalem. And then he just breaks into this lament. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that has killed the prophets. How often I would have gathered your children together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And you did not will it. The picture we have of God with Israel is He's stretched out His hands to her. He has extended saving grace to her. He has invited them into the fold. And the way Jesus says is, Jesus says, it was My will. In in your translation, it probably says, I would have. Okay, But the Greek word there is the word that's often translated will. Okay, he says, I it was my will. I willed for you to come in. But he says, but you would not. And he uses the same word, a little different form, because now he's talking about second person rather than first person. But he says, second person plural, he says, but you would not will it. It was my will that you come in. But it's because of your will that you have not come in. 
It's what we would call the doctrine of resistible grace. That it is God's will to save people. And it is their will that keeps them from being saved. This is why the Jews are not saved. They're not saved, not because God didn't want them to be saved, because it wasn't God's intention to save them. It wasn't because God didn't provide a way for them to be saved. They were not saved because they were willful, disobedient, and obstinate people. They did hear. They did understand. And they walked away from it. So then the question comes, well, has God then rejected his people? And that's the question he asks at the beginning of chapter 11. Okay? And we'll go there next week.